0: I have a plan that a very good three-week sequence to talk about would be uh, the path of practice from, if we can look at it, in yet another time and another perspective. And the path of practice, if you go up the hill to where the um, gate to the... uh, uh, upper meditation area is, there's a prayer wheel there. So you've all done the prayer wheel, right? You've gone up and done the prayer wheel and turned it, and you notice that it has eight sockets on that, sprockets on that prayer wheel. And they represent the eight aspects of the Eightfold Path, the eight um, ways of training the mind and heart to um, kindness and and to compassion. Uh, which is, I think, the way to talk about this path of practice as a, as a Buddhist practice. I think as I think it's the uh, it's the universal religious practice is training the heart to kindness and compassion. I think it's the universal religious practice. It's the way that Buddhists talk about it, and they talk about it as having three aspects, as the aspect of. Um, uh, 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 clarifying, purifying uh, ethics, purifying morality, sila is one, right uh, right, um, right action, right speech, uh, right livelihood and it has three internal mind training practices right effort, right mindfulness and right concentration and then it has the two wisdom practices right understanding and right Um, (coughs) intention or aspiration. And really what I wanted to start with today were the right understanding and right aspiration and talk about them and then talk about uh, another of the three next week and another of the three the week after. The truth is you can start with ethics and many textbooks label it as Sila Samadhi Panya Ethics mind training resulting in wisdom. Other lists will begin with wisdom and say you have to have some amount of wisdom in order to propel you to be on the path to begin with. You have to get it a little bit that there is a problem before you dedicate your life to this, you know. There's a long thing to say about that, but it seems to me, you know, it's interesting to me. I don't know whether it's interesting or distressing. Maybe I'll start with this. I hadn't meant to. It's a kind of distressing piece of uh, journalism this week because it seems to me when I say you dedicate your life to kindness and compassion. Everybody's here because they're interested in that. That makes sense. Nobody didn't get that sentence. Everybody understood that. Um, It seems to me so self-evident that that's what a person would want to do. There's an article in this month's Shambhala Sun, which is marvelous. I really want to suggest you go and get this particular, either get this particular issue of the Sun or go by the book Field Notes on Compassion by Mark Barash. Uh, I have the book and I haven't finished it yet. This is an uh, excerpt from Field Notes on Compassion. Mark, this is a good way to start, better than the newspaper. We'll come back to the newspaper. Uh, it's practically every line is worthwhile, but this I want to start with. Um, Every now and then, this article begins, I meet an escapee, someone who has broken free of self-centeredness and lit out for the territory of compassion. <laughs> is that a good sentence, you know? An escapee from being held in the grip of wherever we're blindlessly, mindlessly, foolishly going. I was thinking this morning as we were sitting, I wanted to think about, uh, about, talking about wisdom, which is an aspect of right understanding. See, what is true? What makes people happy? Why are we unhappy? What's the illness? How can you even think about what's gonna cure the illness until you think about what is the illness? And I think, and I think this is the fundamental teaching of the Buddha, that the illness is ignorance. You know, if we knew. If someone came to you and said, here is the secret formula for absolutely peace of mind, liberation of heart and happiness, you would do it. Um, Every now and then I meet an escapee I'll meet an escapee, someone who's broken free of self-centeredness and lit out for the territory of compassion. You've met them too, those people who seem to emit a steady stream of, for want of a better word, love vibes. As soon as you become within range, you feel embraced, accepted for who you are. For those of us who suspect that you rarely get something for nothing, such geniality geniality can be discomforting. They don't even know me. It's just generic cornflakes. But it feels so good to be around them. They stand there radiating photons of goodwill. And despite yourself, you beam back and the world in a twinkling changes. I'll read you two more paragraphs. I appreciate these compassion mongers, even marvel at them. I rarely think I could be like them. Sure, I've tried to live a benign life, putting my shoulder to the wheel for peace, justice, and Mother Earth, mostly churning out words on a page, bouncing signals off the satellites. I guess it's made me, I doubt that it's made me less egotistical, maybe a bit more so. I still have that too cool objectivity that can suck away my sympathies like an outgoing tide. But I want to be good. This is the line. I want to be good. Not that cramped, chiding, moral majority good. I wished he hadn't, anyway, but anyway, not that cramped, chiding, moral majority good. (laughs) You know, on like an athletic event, like in the Olympics, you say you lose two-tenths of a point for that. All right. He's funny, but too tense up. I'll keep my minority status, thanks. Not sticky sweet, watch your insulin level good, just deep down unfailingly kind. The fact is that I'm not when the world, the fact that I'm not when the world could use so much more kindness, frankly, vexes my spirit. I think that that's a lovely, lovely line that when you look around and you see the world is in so much trouble, we don't even have to have read the newspaper this morning <laughs> to know the world is in trouble. The world could have peace completely. There could be, uh, it's its not that much money. I remember I've heard it, see the 17 or 81 billion dollars, and these days it doesn't matter because both of them are fathomable numbers, that would end world hunger. So. There could be the end of world hunger. There could be, people could put down their guns. End of world hunger. We could have a different world. And still, everybody we mentioned this morning that has this cancer, that cancer, the other cancer, who is unable to stay sober, who cannot keep their marriage comfortable, all those people would still be suffering. It's a very complicated thing to get through a life Never mind just live on this planet. Get through a life in a body and in a relationship. And on a planet where on top of the bodies in a relationship, all this extra stuff is happening that doesn't have to happen. Shelley, it doesn't have to be so hot in here. <laughs> <laughs> It comes back, and I I hear myself often saying this, that uh, the the main obstacle to seeing clearly how much suffering there is in the world and having one's heart broken by it so that you change yourself is being distracted. Being distracted. We paid attention. We stopped and said, what's really going on? I'm really so touched that we are more and more making our prayer intentions out loud. Because I notice that as I listen here, and here, and here, and here, and here, I don't know all those people, but I hear that the level of discourse in my mind, as I'm listening, that my voice lowers, like it does in a hospital, where you suddenly realize, uh uh-oh, everybody, suffering. Everybody, all those people can always imagine this one, that one, this one, that one, this one, that one. I I, uh, I realized in myself that uh, when whoever it was mentioned whoever got born three weeks ago, I had this momentary feeling, oh, she's all right. And then when she was, you know, just sleepy parents probably, but happy, sleepy parents. They, ah, oh, you know, that in the middle of all this pain, there's also, the, there are, of course, moments of beauty and wonder and awe. And I think if that, if that wasn't there, if this whole unfolding weren't so completely magic, we could never tolerate the amount of pain I think we have to be commenting all the time on the amount of magic that is happening and the amount of tragic, what is happening. And that somehow we'll be able to respond to that difficulty with the whole hearts that we get born with, that we are meant to use and that that will be the happiest place. That somehow in that cycle of having reached out in response to somebody, to applaud them, to celebrate them, to hug them, to love them, to bind their wounds, to hold their hands, to bury them, whatever it is to do, that if we're doing it with somebody else out of the spirit of our heart, then we have escaped. We have broken free from self-centeredness. We've gotten out of this own little box and what actually has gotten us out I think is clear seeing, understanding this is the way to happiness nothing else is it's very hard for me to um, I, well, let me start that sentence again Um, maybe this is the fairest way to say it, I feel such dismay because it seems so clear to me when I said in the beginning, right, understanding is understanding life is difficult. Let's not add to the difficulty and let's do what we can so that we can live in a life that's all the time uh, uh, challenged by things in a way that comes out not suffering, which is struggling with challenge, but in fact um, infused with love. Uh, with some, instead of just being okay, it becomes wonderful, because love, because challenge is being met by love, and we are sustaining each other. There isn't a happier way to be. Why don't people see that? <coughs> I don't know why, but maybe I. I, I uh, I cut this out of the paper and carried it around because it was, um, I guess it's worth mentioning, was a story about the uh, the deliberations happening in uh, Los Angeles now about how the new Miss America contest should be reborn. Did you know about, have you been following the fact that Miss America is in trouble? that uh, it's happened for many. Well, Miss America is quite old. I I don't remember it said in this article how many years she's been going. But do you remember ever watching? Mm -hmm. I remember, listen, I remember uh, when I was a young, newlywed person living in the Midwest, we would watch Miss America, and we would watch another pageant called Mrs. America, which was similar. Do you remember that, Frances? It was a Mrs. America. It was similar because we, the beautiful women had to dress and walk around. and I mean, all the things that we would now as feminists never, I mean, <laughs> uh, nothing about that is acceptable. But anyway. Uh, <laughs> But you know, we watched it, and the difference between those two contests, between the Mrs. America and the Miss America, is Mrs. America needed to be married. Uh, Mrs. America, Miss America cannot be married. Mrs. America needed to be married. This is worse. it gets worse. Probably not Dharma at all, but I'm on a roll with it. And one of the events, you know, she had to look good and wear all these costumes and bathing suits and gowns and whatever, and she had to iron and, and the joke in our house is what stood between me and being Mrs. America is I, I could never iron. so I would do something and my husband would say never make it to Mrs. America. <laughs> all right, leaving that all going. Miss, Miss and Mrs. America were very plain. They were, you know, and they, and they had a certain amount They had rules about modesty. They had rules about uh, how low cut the gowns could be. They had rules about how much you had to cover your body. In these days, that modesty is causing people not to watch the programs anymore. (laughs) They're not interesting enough. They're not spicy enough. They're not uh, edgy enough. They're just plain... (laughs) And the and the listenership, watchership has gone down over the years, so they're gonna cancel it unless they can rebirth it in some new ways. There's a whole discussion about how it's gonna come out. So they're talking about more like a reality show, so they'll be backstage. And they'll, you know, more like American Idol, which is the best watch program on, biggest watch program on TV. And they'll watch people agonizing and they'll have back up close and personal and they'll talk to people and they'll have women having migraines or whatever it is backstage. (laughs) But something, here is that though, uh, here's the line that got me. It says, organizers say that something needs to change to catch up with an audience whose tastes have wandered far beyond the earlier pageant's mild tone. And then someone else says, a uh, television uh, savant says, um, I'll tell you this, we're gonna have to cross the line somewhere or we're not gonna appeal to the folks out there. The television audience today has a Colosseum mentality That's bad. And they are not cheering for the gladiator. They're cheering for the lion. What a thing to say. Isn't that that terrible? I think to myself, I belong to a community that goes around and say, may you be free of danger. May you have mental happiness. May you have physical happiness. May you have ease of well-being. I cut it out because I was so distressed. There's just a little line over there. I thought, could that be true? Have we all lost our minds? uh, Is this from video games? Is this from too many wars? Is this, what is it? Uh, I don't know what it is, but I remembered that, uh, that was not too long a digression because what I really wanted to talk about is I remembered an event that happened not so long ago. It was at a conference and I was staying in a hotel up on some top store, story. And uh, I was, uh, went down the hall in the morning to, you know, you, okay, the next meeting is at uh, nine o'clock, so five minutes to nine, you go down to the elevators. I arrive at the elevators um, to wait for my elevator to go down. There's two men standing at the elevator, and they've obviously been in conversation. And one is saying to the other, well, uh, given what I've just told you about him, what, tell me what you think about him. And the other person said, well, clearly, if what you say is so, uh, he's not in his right mind. Just then, the elevator arrives, and the door's open. It's got only a little bit of room in it. It's practically full, so these two men wave me onto the elevator. They indicate they'll wait for the next one. I get on, the door's close. And I realized that my mind is still up there. Who's not in their right mind? Yeah. <laughs> it's talking about somebody at the conference. Maybe it's one of these conferences that I'm about to go to. When it's a professional conference. It's one of my colleagues. Who's not in their right mind? So it's the gossip mind. Or maybe they're talking about the news, some political figure. Then I was thinking, what does it mean, not in your right mind? What's a right mind? And that's where I got to be, started to think, what is a right mind? What's what's like a right mind or a right heart? The rest of Ian Barish's article talks about the pleasure of living out of the heart space that's not trapped in egocentricity, of being available to respond to whatever needs to get responded to, including oneself, including oneself, doesn't mean you forget about yourself, including yourself, but that your capacity for uh, empathic response is given full reign. You you're not you don't have any problem with it. It's just that's 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 being present in your uh, right mind, I think, or in your right heart. That living out of that uh, benevolence. Benevolence is a good word for it because it covers um, regular garden variety, meta. may you be well, may you live and thrive, may you be happy, I hope your life goes well, to compassion. I, I, I notice that you're, you have this struggle. This is a challenge. I hope you're strengthened in it. It's hard to be with people who are struggling. It's hard. Um, It's hard not to wince or look away. And it's tremendous to be able not to wince and to stay there and to be present for somebody. People who do hospice training need to be sure as they train, we're all a little frightened about being with somebody as they die. So really what they learn in part of their training is that you can do it and that it's a comfort to the people. And that it's a comfort to you as well, not to be afraid of it, in the largest sense, to learn that that's uh, that being afraid is extra, complicates it. I mean, it's certainly a, a, a n- nobody wants to have pain, or uh, and who knows how will any of us be at the last minute, whether uh, it'll be fearsome to think about what's on the other side. I hope not but to have some practice in knowing that that's an okay thing too. So to be able to really be with somebody. um, For some reason, the story that Frank Ostaseski, who's the Zen, um, was the founder of the Zen Hospice Project in San Francisco, told recently has just come to mind. He was sitting on a bed um, talking with two men, one man lying in the bed, the other man, his partner, sitting on the bed talking to him. And uh, the man in the bed, really quite near his own death. And if what he's reporting is a conversation between these two men, long-term partners, where the man not dying, sitting on the bed, says to... He says, Tom, we had some really good times together. And Tom says, I'm having a really good time right now. You mm-hmm. mm-hmm. think, how can you know? Mm-hmm. That's a mind that I'd like to have. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. So it's a mind uncomplicated by the story that says, I'm dying, mm-hmm. I won't have more of these times. Mm-hmm. We'll never have more of these times. We'll never have more times of this morning than this morning. If I thought about wisdom as being part of right understanding, that would be part of the wisdom. There's never a time other than now. You know, it's it's been like a couple of years of people teaching uh, the power of now, um, uh, how many years ago, 30 years ago was it that Ram Dass wrote, be here now, changed everybody's life so much. But there's no place that you can ever be but here now. And there's no other time that it can be now ever than now. Everything else we say tomorrow is hypothetical, yesterday is a mind squiggle of memory. The only reality is right now which can either be a liberated free of self-absorbed tension moment or not. I'm having a really good time now. Is actually the only thing that if we could say that if we could say if I could say that all the time. Is mm. that which includes whether or not I like what's happening in the situation, you know. I go from here today to the dentist, seriously. <laughs> <laughs> it's not my favorite activity to go there. You know? But uh, I love my, my, the dental hygienist. I've been with her for years. We're old friends. I meet her four times a year. I, I don't meet her in between. We have a big conversation, mostly one-sided, as you do. <laughs> but I love her. <laughs> So, uh, you know, I'll have a good time, or I'll try to have a good time. This... Uh, okay. I'll tell you another story that's less hypothetical. Oh, that, that's less far away than those two uh, men at the... Um, because I want, want to make the... the I'm telling you the story because I want to make the point about wisdom coupled with right intention as being key. I didn't used to think that. I thought uh, that they, when when I heard the Eightfold Path, okay, a little bit understanding life is difficult. Well, people kind of get that. There's always some troubles going on if not with them. I talked to a friend of mine, by the way, who's a uh, mindfulness teacher who, uh, is one of the founders of New York Insight, now lives in Florida. And uh, she has my same birthday. Uh, She's seven years younger than I am. So we're both past 60 now. Mm. So we were talking yesterday about, uh, we've been teaching a lot of years and certainly practicing for a lot of years, and uh, some, something came up about oldness. And I said, do you notice that the same things that, when we first started 30 years ago learning Dharma, and people taught about old age, sickness, and death, it did not sound like it happened to people like us. It was a very, it was a, something that, you know, that it becomes a livelier discussion as you get older you know, even in health it becomes, and I you know, I think it's I think it's a certain amount of wisdom about life is really fragile. You don't know about tomorrow ever. I'll see you tomorrow as a guest. I'm so I used to think when I first started thirty years ago that uh right intention and right understanding. Well, you had to have a little bit of right understanding. You had a right intention, a little bit, so that you could get started on the real path, which was developing right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration, and really, uh, really serious uh, attention to uh, uh, purifying the heart. Right action, right, um, right action, right livelihood, right speech. I'm actually beginning to think that intention is maybe the whole of it. I'm actually now thinking of Joseph Goldstein quoting his teacher, saying everything hangs on the point of intention. Because this happened to me not years ago, last week. For reasons that I won't do chapter and verse on, um, I spent some time, a couple of days, really not in such a clear state of mind, grieved about something and angry about something, and confused and kind of wallowing around and all of that. And knowing that I was not, I, you know, I, I could have said to myself, I'm not in my right mind. I wasn't in my right mind. Um, but I wasn't doing very much about it. I was actually I was feeling sorry for myself. Look at me, my mind is so beleaguered. I take on all these tasks, I'm doing way too much, I shouldn't have done this, I shouldn't have done that. This is in Buddha's talk, the, the second dagger kind of behavior. You know about the second dagger? When someone stabs you with a dagger, it's very painful, and they take out the dagger, and then you continue to stab yourself. Why was I standing in front of that dagger? What did I do to aggravate that guy? Why would anybody come with a dagger? It was very stupid of me to be in a place where there were daggers. Anything, but each of those is compounding the pain that I already have with subsequent daggers. It's a very unwise move. Making myself more and more confused, and then a very dear friend of mine, one of my spiritual confidants and I, got to talk on the telephone. And I just carried on about how just I hadn't seen clearly about this or that or the other. Such a... So partly it was a, a, a kind of confession about what I'd done, but partly it was just a dramatic presentation of my current confusing life. And then after I hung up, I was so embarrassed. <laughs> I mean, I don't know whether this is bad or good. It certainly shows I am not free of ego, but I was so embarrassed. He's a person I know who I respect, who I know respects me. It's kind of, I was staggering around in my, uh, so to speak, staggering like a, an intoxicated person, not seeing clearly at all. And I said to myself, okay, this is it. I can't live with a confused mind. I'm starting to do intensive spiritual practice. I teach spiritual practices, I'll do them. Starting now, seriously, sitting, walking, doing my mala with my intentions on it every day. I'm gonna really take up a, a, a daily physical practice of an hour walk every day. I did all those things, actually, and I got better. But the thing is, I got better before I did the things. And that's the thing that was really, really interesting to me. The things are very good. They sustain it. I love it. So I'm very glad to tell you practice works. You should do it. <laughs> I feel a lot better uh, having uh, re-inspired myself. But I was better before I did it. And this is a really important thing for me to notice about myself, that I think what happens is, is that you really say, I'm not doing this. There is another way to be, and I'm that now. I've got time to wait, it's late, it's dark, I can't go out and start to walk up the mountain in the middle of the night, I have to start now. And there's something about that decisiveness, clarity of intention that clears the mind. I was really surprised about it because I was preparing to come and tell you a whole talk about practice. And I think the practice is really valuable. I'm actually enjoying it a lot. I had all kinds of practices that I do and I like doing them. But the truth is, before I did them, I was better from intention. I think it is intention. When uh, Ian Barish says, the fact that I'm not one, the world could use so much more kindness, frankly, vexes my spirit. I want to be good. He goes on to say, I'm a a nice enough guy. I like most people. I adore my offspring, even when they drive me crazy. I love my parents, despite the corkscrew of childhood. I dote on my siblings, even though there is that scrapbook of old slights. I treasure my friends, even though they sometimes let me down. Conventional wisdom wouldn't fault me for saving the best stuff for my nearest and dearest and giving the rest of humanity the leftovers. That's an interesting line. And conventional wisdom would allow me to prefer my nearest and dearest. And it says, but, This, he says, is uh, the true center of all spiritual traditions. The truly radical proposal, open your heart to everybody. Everybody. What is compassion, that X factor, that every faith exalts as a supreme virtue? When When the Dalai Lama says my only religion is kindness and the Pope calls for a civilization of love, it can't just be mealy-mouthed piety. Kindness and love are powers unto themselves able to transmute even the most relentless enemy. So I want to stop at that point to say the relentless enemy that my kindness transmutes is my own grumbling heart, my own uh, judging mind. That is a relentless enemy. I'd. I used to think, when I started practice, this makes me laugh, uh, and my teachers uh, talked uh, so stirringly about concentration and the power of concentration. I used to uh, imagine, uh, I was having grown up with Superman comics. Uh, the Krypton. Do you you remember, anybody here read Superman comics? You know, (laughs) that he would look that beam of Krypton out the front of it, it would make a hole in the front of battleships that he could bore through anything, that your concentration would do something out there. And I want to say that my concentration does something in here. And if what I am concentrating on and what I am being mindful of is the presence or absence of goodwill in my heart. I'm trying to fix it. That's the intention. That my intention is that my heart live up to its potential as a well-wishing instrument. Really barring none. That I think is the great uh, inspiration and the hardest edge of the practice. It's not hard to love who's near and dear to me. But really, I think it seriously means omitting none, out of compassion. There's that line in the metta sutta, uh, may all beings be at ease, those that are, um, what? may all beings be at ease, whatever their living nature, whether they are large or small or medium, coarse or fine, omitting none, omitting none is the operative phrase. Cannot say, everybody in the world, every creature I wish well, but my brother-in-law, because of this, I can't make room for him. If there's any impediment, and it's not, it seems to me so clear, because if there's an impediment, about anything however slight you say well six billion human beings so one brother-in-law it can't be that much of an impediment (laughs) but the impediment means i have not seen that it that i have not given myself the gift of a loving heart if i am holding on to that grudge that's the impediment My wisdom is not good. My brother-in-law is living a life wherever he is. By by the way, I'm fine with my brother-in-law. It's just an example. (laughs) But it, it, it means I have not seen clearly that the only way to freedom is an absolutely open heart. I'll say it another way because I want to say it as both the fruit of mindfulness practice as well as the fruit of metta practice everybody here is familiar with metta practice where you really systematically bring to mind both yourself and your dear ones and your friends and your not so dear ones but oh, okay they work with me or they're in my community or something and you know the the mind starts to be able to make room for them to say, well, you know, he's like that, she's like that, you know. Heart of hearts, not my favorite, but okay, they're a person. I've All the way out to uh, my all beings on all realms, omitting none. I'm trying to visualize it so I could say it in a visualizing way. It's as if you invite the whole world into your heart. I'm not afraid of anybody here because I want to say that mindfulness practice is the same sort of inviting the whole world into the heart that the genuine mindfulness practice is meeting this moment just as it is without any need for it to be at all different The 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 wonderful old Sri Lankan monk who died in our time, probably 10 years ago, said uh, one of the words he used to describe mindfulness is it's not coercive, doesn't insist that anything be other than what it is. Oh, look at that. It does not mean that you don't have feelings about it. Uh, or that you don't do something about it, it just means that you don't resent it for being what it is. It is what it is. It's actually an enormous statement of wisdom. This is what it is. It couldn't be another thing. I, I wonder that the the uh, that whole that whole um, part of speech of a should. I'm thinking about, well sometimes you use the word should, you say, oh, uh, I uh, ordered a package two-day freight, it should have been here today. Uh, Maybe what we mean to say is, uh, it was meant to have been here today, it's not here. (laughs) I should be uh, more spiritually uh, uh, um, pure than I am, I have so many... Irritable thoughts. Uh, Maybe the sentence is backwards. I have many irritable thoughts. I'm as spiritually pure as I am. First of all, who knows? Maybe that's spiritually pure, having irritable thoughts, noticing that was an irritable thought, now it's gone. Okay. Maybe that's the thing about minds. Sometimes they have irritable thoughts, sometimes they don't. Maybe it's a mistake to actually think that a... um, I think irritable thoughts arise. I think irritable thoughts arise. I am looking for the kind of mind in which irritable uh, irritable thoughts don't sit down and start to camp out. Yeah, a, irritable thoughts arise. You know, if you're on the freeway and there's way too much traffic and people are driving poorly and uh, you're not going to be someplace on time and people are not paying attention, Irritable thoughts arise for them not to take up residence and churn up the heart. That would be what I would want. Somebody used a word in a book I was reading the other day to describe the condition of mindfulness that I thought was completely brilliant. He said a moment of mindfulness is one where you don't require that the moment be anything different than what it is. It's just what it is. You recognize it as what it is. You don't, and if it's, including that it's pleasant or unpleasant. And if it's pleasant, you might even include that the thought comes up, it would be good if this stayed, but not the craving that it needs to stay. You could even have the thought. It would be ridiculous. I, I once actually didn't discriminate that. It was just a long time ago where I thought, well, I'm not supposed to prefer. And sometimes you read texts that says not preferring this or that, then you are free. And I thought, this is not gonna work for me because the truth is I prefer this or that. So I have to have a dharma that says, it's coming, this is what's here. Ah, this this is lovely. I prefer this sort of experience. I hope it stays. Ah, this is not lovely. I don't prefer this kind of experience. I hope it doesn't hang around. And that I could have a a completely open heart to both of them. That's the truth, but I don't have to get behind it with pulling or pushing or demanding. A non-coercive saying, ah, that's what's here. An unpleasant experience that uh, I really uh, hope will soon go away. That's it but not energy behind the kind of, you could be content with that. So the word that my friend used in his book, talking about it, is he said, you become transparent to the moment arising. And I love that. Like there was nothing pushing or shoving, you know, that it could go right through you. And not so much that it would go right through you, which I think it does, and then the next moment, and the next moment, and the next moment. But he said, because if you're transparent to the moment, then you are integral to the moment. And it's not other than you. And there's nothing that's other than you. And I thought it was such a wonderful entryway into (laughs) the awareness of when the sense of I that's in contention with anything else disappears, then there's nothing but being. And it's extraordinary. I want to read read to you a piece that I've talked about this book for the last several weeks. This is Cleansing the Doors of Perception. The Religious Significance of Entheogenic Plants and Chemicals, Houston Smith. And so if you missed the last several weeks, you don't know other things that we've talked about that have been so interesting about things Houston Smith had to say. But this is a a collection of papers he wrote about his own experience with these kind of plants and with other people's experiences and with the use of uh, consciousness altering chemicals as a way of both of all studying consciousness. But also as um, for some people, while it was legitimate research, a tremendously supportive part of their dying process doesn't it's, they, nobody can do this anymore i'll read I'll read this one to you. This is a man in a hospital. This is a person actually not having a drug experience. This is a person in a hospital who suddenly has the kind of experience that he will then go on to say people often have Uh, with a mind-altering chemical. It happened on the day when my bed was pushed out of doors to the open gallery of the hospital. I cannot now remember whether the revelation came suddenly or gradually. I only remember finding myself in the very midst of those wonderful moments beholding life for the first time in all its young intoxication of loveliness in its unspeakable joy, beauty, and importance. I cannot say exactly what the mysterious change was. I saw no new thing, but I saw all the usual things in a miraculous new light, in what I believe is their true light. I saw for the first time how wildly beautiful and joyous, beyond any words of mine to describe it, is the whole of life. Every human being moving across that porch, every sparrow that flew, every branch tossing in the wind, was caught in and was part of the whole mad ecstasy of loveliness, of joy, of importance, of intoxication of life. Beautiful, isn't that? Mm -hmm. This is a classic one. This is Henry James. One conclusion was forced upon my mind at that time and my impression of its truth has remained ever unshaken. It is that our normal waking consciousness, rational consciousness as we call it, is but one type of consciousness while all about it, parted from it by the flimsiest of screens, there lie potential forms of consciousness entirely different We may go through life without suspecting their existence but apply the requisite stimulus and at a touch they are there in all their completeness, definite types of mentality which probably somewhere have their field of application and adaptation. No account of the universe in its totality can be final which leaves out these other forms of consciousness, which leaves these other forms of consciousness quite disregarded. Can or will William. William James, yeah, sorry, William James, my mistake, William James. So the second of the, the that's William James. The first of those actually, uh, I think is the clue to another way in which the mind suddenly appreciates in a different way the same things that it stood, that it saw before. And here we are, all looking at each other, and everybody sees everybody. My sense um, my even my own experience with altered um, with the altered moments where you realize that it's all an enormous miracle is that I never see more than this. I only see it differently uh, it doesn't uh, it doesn't actually. Uh, doesn't come out iridescent, it doesn't uh, look like the yellow submarine. Uh, I hoped it would, you know. <laughs> Being sort of a product of yellow submarine consciousness. Um, uh, what looks different, uh, well you can tell me. Uh, my best experiences are ones in which it suddenly, the only thing that's, the overriding um, experience of the moment is that all of this is a miracle. And uh, everybody breathing in and out, the plants breathing in and out, and each of us looking exactly like us, which is happening just like this. But sometimes it's happening just in a normal way. And sometimes it's happening in such a way that it makes life really a, a cause for tremendous celebration. You realize, wow, this is extraordinary. I think that it is that, that piece relates to the intention to meditate. For me... Okay, here's my intention. I want to see clearly so that I will be able to see the suffering in the world without uh, being uh, frightened by it, without needing to turn away from it, so that my heart will be available to respond to it because that will be my happiest way of being. I also want to use a clear mind For in the, I want to develop, cultivate a clear mind in the hope that it will provide me more access to those moments in which I know this is a tremendous blessing and a huge gift. Because I think that that's one of the things that sustains me in being able to look at the degree of suffering in the world. I think actually, as I'm saying that to you, I want to point out the two things that sustain. I think that it's sustaining to me to know there's a bigger story here than just here. I think it's tremendously for me just sustaining to be involved in a relationship of the expression and uh, um, the expression of and, and the openness to feelings of love and compassion and appreciation. I think that this is enlivening, and I think that that's enlivening. I wouldn't want one or the other. I want both. I wanted to read a prayer to you. Partly, I, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about an article in the this Shambhala Sun as well. That uh, about a new book that talks about uh, not in an appreciative way about religion, um, and uh, it's a it's a, you know, interesting. It's apparently doing very well. It's interestingly, I suppose, well written. There's an uh, interview with the author in the book, um, and uh, the central thesis of it is that, uh, which I think is wrong by the way, mm-hmm. is that uh, our religions are a terrible problem because they're all based on uh, irrational mythological stories uh, which could be taken seriously and literally and used to bad ends. That part is true, they could be taken uh, literally and um, <laughs> used to bad ends. And there's plenty of evidence in, in the course of the world for that being true. Uh, the, there's a review of that book that says uh, most of history, and I'm, 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 not, you know, I'm not sure how I would back this up with scholarship, but I was happy to hear it. Most of religious history has assumed that the religious myths that are at the center of religious teachings, including Buddhism, are not true, that they are religious myths, and that they are meant to be taken as paradigms and as uh, um, metaphors for what we need to do. That uh, It's only actually in quite recent times maybe it's not completely true, that uh, the myth has been taken literally towards unfortunate ends. And I thought to myself about the myth of the Buddha on the night of his enlightenment. Um, I'm pretty sure this is a myth. Not about the enlightenment, but maybe that too. But anyway, that uh, the Buddha sitting down with the great determination Again, this would be his uh, um, intention, talking about wise intention, wise understanding. This would be his monumental intention to not get up from that place until his mind was completely open and he had understood fully the cause and the end of suffering. Because his understanding from his own experience was that uh, suffering is endless mind always suffers. It suffers as long as it struggles. It suffers every time it struggles, whether or not there's stuff there for it to struggle with. We make up things sometimes. So he sat down. But the myth of that story is that the forces of confusion in the, in, in the person of Mara, who was the confuser or the enemy, the evil one, fly around the Buddha and in all the pictures you see Mara floating around the Buddha sitting and aiming spears of anger and uh, bad intent at the Buddha. And the the imagery of it is that the Buddha so radiated a field of, of benevolence and kindness that those spears when they hit that field Turned into flowers and fell on the ground. It's a beautiful image. I love that image. And Mara floats by erotic temptations because you know the things that get get us going is either an erotic temptation, "You need me," or a, a, an aggressive temptation, "I'm coming to get you and see if you can sit peacefully." So he withstands all these aggressive temptations, then here come the erotic temptations, but he has such a field of benevolent peace surrounding him and floating out, that all of the erotic stuff just turns into flowers and falls on the ground. I don't think that really happened. I think it's a metaphor for what could happen in each of our own lives, that if we, make the intention to generate a heart of kindness under all circumstances and keep working on it, then we are not either tempted into mistakes or uh, goaded into mistakes. I thought I would read you a prayer because I wanted to do something that was religious. Ah. (laughs) This is a... uh, this is, a, it's a, this is actually a beautiful picture book of uh, portraits of Tibetans in, is, in exile. This is a, uh, uh, a picture of a Tibetan woman. This is a, uh, Tibetans in exile in India. And this is this woman talking. My name is Ama Ade and I am 65 years old. I spent 28 years of my life in eight different Chinese prisons prisons as a political prisoner. My chuba which is the traditional dress of both Tibetan men and women became my protection at night in the cold and dampness of my small prison cell. I used my sleeve as a pillow, one side of my chuba as a mattress, and the other side as a blanket, since in many of the prisons there was no other bedding or blankets. Often when I worked in the prison vegetable garden that fed the Chinese guards, my chuba became a secret hiding place where I could store and conceal food to bring to other prisoners who were starving. I was caught and severely punished for this on many occasions. The inscription you see on the flag in this photograph is the dolma prayer. I attribute my survival to the ceaseless repetition of this prayer. When I was first in prison, I tore a strip of cloth from my chuba and tied 108 knots in it to use as a rosary. It's a tradition for Tibetans to count the number of repetitions of our prayers because it helps us to maintain our attention and concentration. The Chinese guards noticed this knotted cloth and beat me. Then I began to say my prayers out loud in my small cell. The guards waited secretly outside and whenever they heard the sounds of my prayers, they would again beat me. And so I learned to whisper my prayers. When they saw my lips moving, the guards placed duct tape over my mouth. I learned to say my prayers with my fingers and in my mind. When they saw my fingers moving, they beat me and placed duct tape over my fingers to prevent me from counting. And so it was that I learned to pray silently in my mind without making any gestures so the guards would see nothing at all. So. I don't know when, as I read that to you, you know, I've read it a few times in my life in different places, and I'm I've I've always been tremendously touched by uh, the ardency that's part of that, you know, the ardency. And it's not so semi- and I think it's not the ardency to get the prayer said; it's the ardency. To have the effect of that prayer, which will be that my heart stays good. That if you keep on praying for other people, you liberate your heart from prison. It's a classic story, you know, in uh, in the concentration camp literature, uh, which this year is the 60th anniversary of the opening of. Of someone uh, coming up to someone clearly standing and saying his prayers uh, in the middle of a in the middle of one of the camps where most people had stopped, and someone taunting him and saying, "How can you you know it's idiotic, why are you saying your prayers? look where we are, look who's there. pointing at the guards around them, I say, "What are you doing?" he said, I'm praying that I don't become like them. Mm -hmm. I think that when we, we, that there is the uh, ardent intention of the heart to wish well, means I am trying to keep my heart at ease, a place of refuge, an enmity-free zone it be better for the world, but it mostly be better for me. For an enmity-free zone, then there would be nothing that would separate me from anyone or anything. And then I would be transparent. And then uh, life would uh, <coughs> not so much move through me as I would be integral to it. There wouldn't be anything that wasn't me. And I'd have more instances of realizing that it's all um, an awesome magical unfolding. So that's all we have time to talk about today. Let's take a breath, sit for a minute. peaceful and happy. May the day arrive when the whole world says its prayers for each other out loud. And we have a different world. May all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering.